0: and those that will join us on podcast at
1: 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode.
0: Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today we're joined by a couple of fantastic people live from Palestine. They're from the Good Shepherd Collective. We've got Lara Killani and Cody O'Rourke. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Thank you so very much for being with us. I really appreciate you sparing this time. Lara, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Good Shepherd Collective and what it is you do?
2: Sure. The so Good Shepherd Collective started a few years ago as a group of organizers wanting to really be able to raise money and organize around the most pressing issues on the ground. We started in 2018, and we've been going since then. Now for about five years, connecting with folks in the U.S. and with the needs on the ground in Palestine, and organizing webinars, giving updates online, collecting data, and working on campaigns.
0: How do you tell us about some of the campaigns?
1: We have several things that that we're working on. The where our primary focus is is on the defund racism campaign which is a campaign to stop the flow of charitable funds to these settler organizations you know from our point of view and from our analysis and research these settler organizations really represent the tip of the spear of the zionist movement here Um, we're talking organizations like like Regabim, the Ear David, which operates in Silwan, the Hebron Fund, which of course operates in Hebron, the Israel Fund, which is the organization that Ariel King is a part of that's been operating, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah and other places in East Jerusalem. These organizations bring in millions of dollars each year. to to run their programming. And through that programming, Palestinians are being displaced from their land. Let's break down what the programs actually do. These are American citizens.
0: Overwhelmingly, they are either evangelical Christian Zionists or they're actually Zionists themselves. They're getting a tax deduction in the States and they put this money into these organizations. These
1: organizations then bring that money to Palestine and do what? Well, in some cases, they're actually taking Palestinians to court. Like in the case of Khan al you know, Regabim is actually using these funds to take, you know, the, the, the Jahalin tribe in East Jerusalem to court to push them off of their land. Um, in other cases, they're using um, this money for public affairs campaigns, you know, to run promotions and advocacy campaigns for different political figures. I mean, that's essentially how uh, Itamar Ben-Gabir got into power. And got a seat in the Knesset, as well as Bezalel Smotritz, is using these funds to yeah to gain power and resources. And so now they're in the upper echelons of the Israeli government. So these charitable funds aren't providing
0: money for orphans or um, building institutions for disabled. They're politically weaponized charitable donations meant to displace Palestinians and entrench Zionist occupation.
2: Exactly. So in a lot of cases, like Cody said, they're doing the exact opposite of what you would expect from a charitable organization. So when you think about charitable organizations, actually, like in the law, it says things like helping impoverished people, working on education, decreasing neighborhood tensions. And in a lot of these cases, what the organizations are actually doing is surveillance, lawfare to evict people from their homes and destroy their communities destroy resources like solar panels, wells. And it's important also that when we think about the communities that they're targeting, like Cody said, a lot of the time it's Bedouin communities, but almost exclusively it's impoverished communities. So communities really live living in rural areas other than in Jerusalem with really intense lack of resources, often no real roads. A lot of people don't have cars. They're using their own wells. They don't have access to electricity. So really targeting people who don't have a lot to begin with to move them from their land and leveraging the power of the state, usually using the court system to do it. So even when we talk about communities in Jerusalem, like the Israel Land Fund, which is uh, involved in Sheikh Jarrah, they're really leveraging the power of the state against the people living in these homes, often who are already refugees as well.
0: I mean, we've got that famous case of the Kurd family, Mohammed kurd and his twin sister, yeah, where these lawfare organisations were able to get a portion of the house. Mohammed came back from school as an 11-year-old and found that half his house had gone. But the same court won't reinstate the Kurd family back to their home in Haifa, a blatant apartheid situation, two people, two sets of laws, depending on, on who they are. These organisations do so much, quote-unquote, dirty work In the form of legitimizing the Judaization of all of Palestine, the Jewish National Fund. Is that something that you guys look at, the JNF?
1: Yeah, that's something that we've looked at and we've talked quite extensively about. And I think that one of the things, you know, from our experience that we, you know, that we bring to the table is is talking about campaigns and bringing an analysis to that campaigns also have to be winnable. Mm -hmm. You know, if we keep on putting out these campaigns where our resources don't match the resources of those that we're targeting and we inevitably end up losing, and essentially what we're doing year after year is just educating people. And so what we try to say is, is that, you know, look at like our targets also have to be for, I guess, lack of a better term, like in our weight class, you know, organizations like ReggaBeam aren't multi-billion dollar entities like the JNF these are organizations that are running on a budget of a couple of million dollars. And so for us to have a campaign against, you know, the JNF, which is a huge multi
0: international multi-billion dollar entity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense, yeah, you know, because they're so ingrained in the halls of power. Whereas, you know, smaller organizations like, you know, like Rega or the Hebron, for example, they make a little bit more sense because then it becomes politically feasible for the politicians, for the judges to make a stand for for justice. So it's that, of course, the JNF does more damage overall than all of these other organizations. But if we can't beat the JNF in a campaign, then what's the point? And so that's another part of this campaign is, is going, you know, we have to develop campaigns that also are winnable in the long run.
0: Yeah, very strategic. We're speaking with Cody and Lara from the Good Shepherd Collective. We'll have a link in the podcast to their website and how you might support them. Any wins?
1: you'd like to share with us? You know, in our work down in South Hebron Hills, you know, there were several instances in the village of Um Umol Kher, which we co-organized to ensure that home demolitions wouldn't take place. And through a process of continual protective presence, co-organizing internationally, now those communities have master plans in their villages. You know, that's one. You know, there's also been other campaigns um, in Masafriata that we've been a part of, like the village of Sarura, you know, and working with, Um, the organization Youth of Smooth to make sure that there's a continual presence in that area. Most recently, in co-organizing in Canada with the Just Peace Advocates and some other groups, we filed a a legal petition with the Canadian government to investigate some of the charitable organizations that are funneling money to the previously mentioned organizations here in Palestine, you know, Regabim and others. So we've had some smaller victories We see momentum building, we filed some legal petitions, and so, you know, we hope that with grassroots mobilization, we can turn these petitions into real structural change. Right. And how would people go about supporting your work, Laura?
2: Well, people can support our work in a lot of different ways. They can follow us on social media so they can keep up with, you know, the different ways that we report about what's going on here, but they're seeing it online They can sign up to our newsletter. And of course, importantly, they can sign the petition at the Defund Racism Campaign. That's an important step organizing in their own communities. But most important for us is probably signing up to be monthly donors. And I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but when we started Good Shepherd Collective, as I said, it was to connect really the needs on the ground with a larger international community of allyship and support and and really creating community over a long time. And part of that is because when you see home demolitions or arrests or other acts of it, murders, things like that, there are different forms of support that trickle in. You know, people who have their homes demolished, will have a tent or a place to stay or have, you know, resources from humanitarian organizations come in. What people would say that they really need is to end the process of home demolitions, right? So you really need financing and support in order to do that and to run a campaign like that, or at least to get at the structures underpinning that. Anyway, so when the Good Shepherd Collective began, one of the things that we decided to do was rather than to be funded by large donors who are looking for things like humanitarian aid and these sorts of things, we were going to be supported by individual donations. So our monthly, you know, bills, (laughs) the way that we pay for gas and electricity and we continue to fund this work is really by two, five $10, $15 $10, $15 donations that come from average people who support what we're doing and in return who get, you know, access to all of the updates of what we're doing and so on and and who we have conversations with and things like that. Um, so that's really a big, important way that people can support and it's as little as agreeing to give $2 a month.
0: Okay. So we'll put a link to the donate page as well in, in the podcast, but the website is so goodshepherdcollective.org. Or defundracism.org. And we'll have links to those in the podcast listeners. Cody, how did you end up in Palestine?
1: Uh, I came here about 18 years ago. Oh, you're Palestinian now. Through the Christian pe- <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, through the through the Christian Peacemaker teams. Um, and we did a tour through the old city of Hebron. When I saw what the settlers were doing, what I saw what the military was doing, for me it became pretty clear that what was happening here was really dark. Was really nasty, and it and it really wasn't two sides of the story. It was about a military government trying to squash a people to take over their land and resources. And so, you know, seeing that injustice, I tried to stay committed to it. You know, over this, you know, coming up on almost you know two two decades. So, you know, we're still you know plugging away at trying to see how we can grow as individuals, as an organization, and see how we can, you know, plug in to fit. The needs of the movement.
0: Lara, I know as an Australian Palestinian how far we've come in my lifetime with our advocacy, with our message of truth that is dispelling all the myth and lies, you know, the land without a people for a people without a land and all that nonsense that Paul Newman, Exodus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your feeling?
2: That's such a good question. Well, I remember growing up, I grew up in the United States, and I always wanted to be in Palestine. And I remember growing up and really having this sense of needing to tone oneself down and find a way to convince the other party or, you know, That it wasn't necessarily about truth as much as it was about building relationships or something like this. And I think that we've seen over time how cynically some of those things are used to really silence people and keep Palestinians from being able to speak honestly, honestly about their experiences, and also to speak honestly about real situations of anti-Semitism that exist in the world, what Zionism and anti-Zionism really are and what's really needed here. And, and to talk honestly about the situation of settler colonialism here. So I think even in the last few years where I've been in Palestine, and I've really been plugged into some of these networks and been able to see what people are talking about online or here, I think there is a really positive shift in the discourse around what is really happening here, where people are willing and able to identify the situation as one of of ongoing settler colonialism rather than just occupation or a conflict (laughs) between two equal parties that people are really willing to talk about it as something else and begin to examine not only what is Zionism, but what is anti-Zionism? What does it mean to imagine liberation? And what, what do we have to undo, but also what do we have to create to do that?
0: I'm a little bit older than you, but I'd be interested in your perspective. For so long, we were conditioned to play good victim, you know, be the good guy. I don't, I'm not exactly sure that that's the right word, but but increasingly, increasingly, I'm seeing Palestinian youth unapologetic. The problem isn't us. The problem is you, that you don't humanise us. It, it's so very empowering. And increasingly, you know, I'm so excited by the calibre Not only of our youth, but in particular our our women, Palestinian women, and just how vocal and strong and steadfast they are. And you're certainly one of them, Lara. Is that the sense you're getting in the States as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really cool to see organizations sort of come into fruition or see individuals like um, Hamid Al Kurd the other day was sharing, uh, I think he was interviewed on BBC. BBC, yeah. And to see how widely that was circulated was a really big deal. I mean, I can't imagine any time in my life before now (laughs) where something, even like what he said um, would be said. And I think with the defund racism campaign and with Good Shepherd Collective and the folks that we work with here, what we're really trying to do is tell folks like that is so great. And it is so important to speak honestly and truthfully about what is going on. And more than that, we need to like use the information that exists here about what targets are most intensely contributing to the ongoing process of, you know, dis forced displacement and ethnic cleansing and resource theft, and how we can connect that to the communities back home so that it's not, you know, organizing protests and we've seen like within our lifetime does an amazing job of sending folks out into the street, hundreds of thousands in New York City. Or maybe not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands <laughs> and how powerful that is. But after the protests and after the webinars, what does it mean to be organizing, you know, long-term in solidarity with folks here that we can really impact on the ground tomorrow? You know, if we were able to cut, I think it's 20% of the funding that Reggafim says is coming from international resources. If we could cut that, that would mean certainly one less employee, or a few less legal complaints in a year against vulnerable communities that don't have many resources to begin with, like we said. So yeah, I think that's really the, I think that's the challenge moving forward is how do we move this energy and amazing sort of turn towards truth telling and honesty and bravery into change.
0: And is that work we need to do within our community? You know, One of the challenges I've always found is our community is ready to send aid, but advocacy is this smoke and mirror thing?
2: I think it's scary. You know, I think it's I think it's still something that folks feel maybe ambivalent about. I think if I imagine for myself for a minute, I think it's quite a different sacrifice to put your own name or face out there um, as lobbying, especially, you know, in the United States or I imagine in Australia or the UK, lobbying for very specific things, like the defund racism campaign, for example, than it is to send some money, right? And I, and that's really the challenge with the organizing is that there is a lot of money for tents and <laughs> for to rebuild homes and to send someone to the hospital. And those are all important. But that is not going to change the violent structures that not only that we have here, but that are supported by Structures used against other communities in the United States, for example.
0: Of course. And I know we spoke about it off air, but the reality, the connectedness of our struggle, the struggle for Palestinian self determination, how that links to Indigenous struggles all over the world, whether it's Turtle Island or here.
2: Yeah. You know, when we first started looking into the Defund Racism campaign, one of the things, or the research, I guess, behind it, so, you know, the way that charities in the United States, serve as fiscal sponsors or conduits for organizations elsewhere. And so, for example, for Regavim, there are a couple of funds in the United States, the ASOR fund and the One Israel Fund, at least that we know of, that support them. But when we started looking into these organizations that are registered charities, we began to notice that There are a lot of organizations that are registered as charities across the United States that are considered hate groups under the definition of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And you can find this on the Southern Poverty Law Center website that are not just, you know, not just engaged in this kind of active work of settler colonialism, surveillance, lobbying and so on. But that are involved in like xenophobic organizing in the United States, uh, racist and anti-Black organizing, anti-LGBTQ, uh, just all of these sort of horrible things that you probably don't think of as charitable. And that if we won a campaign like a campaign against a small organization like Regavim, for example, that would not only serve as a building block to take down or at least, you know, to withdraw funding from an organization like the JNF, which you mentioned earlier, but also a lot of these horribly racist or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, organizations that are also operating in Absolutely. the United States and I'm sure are operating <laughs> in Absolutely. Australia uh,
0: un- unquestionably one of the realities as we know, as you know the anti boycott laws that are getting passed all through the United States and state legislatures etc those pro forma templates of the do not boycott Israel acts or whatever they want to be called those templates are being used and Israel's coming out and they're inserting corporation x or whatever it might be so in fact Palestine remains at the actual the pointy end.
1: Those are good points, especially, you know, thinking about the anti-BDS work that organizations are doing and how that inevitably circumvents other movements of justice. I think that that's one of the things, what we're trying to expand on what it really means to be anti-Zionist, because I think for a lot of people, when they think about anti-Zionism, for them, that means a critique of the state. And so a lot of times people's organizing is shaped only around the Israeli state, whereas the Zionist movement is much larger than the Israeli state. And, you know, you had brought up the JNF, you know, while it's a part of the Israeli state, it's larger than the Israeli state. And so one of the things that we try to do as the Good Collective is try to like push on what anti-Zionist work should really look like. So like within our movement, there's a lot of Zionist organizations that still attempt to be partners of a Palestinian liberation movement, such as Breaking the Silence. Now, Breaking the Silence is also openly opposed to the BDS movement. It's right on their website. And so our movement work a lot of times allows organizations like Breaking the Silence to come in and be a part of these spaces and look like they're partners in the work that we're doing when in all reality, when you really look at the bread they bake, it's not any good. And so Breaking the Silence, you know, is just one example. You know, there's Other examples of what we feel that people need to start talking about, like what anti-colonialism actually looks like. You know, there's lots of Zionist, you know, co-resistance groups here that actually have programs where they bring more Jewish Americans, more Jewish Australians, more Jewish folks from the UK to come here and co-organize with Palestinians, but then inevitably end up taking up residency, they take up citizenship and these are organizations like the Center for Jewish Nonviolence all that's left Shimon Peres Center yeah all of these organizations and so what we see is is that all of those groups that we mentioned they're all able to co-organize in these movement spaces right so when we have the power to challenge zionism it can't just be challenging the israeli state it has to be challenging our partners that are in these organizing spaces and go look at like if you can't adopt these principles of anti-zionism and decolonial thought and praxis then you're not a part of this movement and unfortunately we're seeing a lot of organizations like breaking the silence the center for jewish Nonviolence, all that's left co-organized with big name people like jewish voice for peace for example that's very problematic and poisonous to the organizing work that we're trying to do here on the ground.
0: Indeed. Now, we have no time for normalization and small L liberal Zionists. You either believe that we're all equal and there is no supremacy or you don't. We've got a few minutes left, Lara. Give us some commentary on what it's like living in Palestine today as a Palestinian post Netanyahu's return in a fifth election in five years.
2: Well, of course, I'm in sort of a different position than a lot of the folks around me here because I have US citizenship so you know I, i'm in a different position than than a lot of the folks around me in terms of access to movement and and so on but i think in general the feeling is and has been for a while that there is not a positive view on the horizon you know right now there's no real political movement being put forward as the way forward which i think is something important and really connected intimately to this important thought about what does it mean to be not only anti-Zionist but for liberation and how do we work toward that. So I think that's really missing and I think that leaves folks with a sense of hopelessness and you know we've been seeing put out a newsletter a couple of weeks ago about these mass protests that have been taking place on uh, in 48 over the last months Against, it's really against Netanyahu. I mean, it's really against Netanyahu as a person rather than, at, than, I think, even against Likud or what it stands for or any of these things. And so it has been really frustrating for myself and, and I'm sure anyone else who's paid attention to see how some of these protests have really been misrepresented as calls for liberation or even in any way representing uh, Palestinian interests when it's well known and you can see for yourself. You won't find a Palestinian out in those. uh, You won't find many. I'll say that. You Mm -hmm. won't find many. And the Palestinian flags are really out there being held by a small faction of Israelis. Whereas most people are out there holding Israeli flags. They're very proud Mm -hmm. of, of the state. They're very proud to be Zionists. So I think that's been hard, just kind of keeping all of those things in mind, as you see, like a lot of attention being drawn toward this movement. And and I think for myself, kind of reflecting on what, even if what everything they're asking for happens, what does it mean for us? You know, we're, as Palestinians, we're still going to be left with a high court that has, since its inception, validated the forced displacement massacre ethnic cleansing, destruction of homes, you know, uh, imprisonment of children, torture, you know, just a few days ago, there was more bombing on Gaza. And a few days before that, GSC had gone and driven down to the, the Gaza border just to see it because we never had, or sorry, I, I never had. <laughs> and so it was really horrifying to to see it and to be able to see from afar the lights in gaza during ramadan and imagining what it would be like to be there and not being able to be there and feeling so far away and then only a few days later hearing about these bombings that you know were expected really so i think it's really a sense it's it's not a positive feeling that we're sitting with right now. It's been a lot of killings, a lot of targeting of the same places. But I think to sort of give some hope at the end of this, I think that there are ways forward. And it's really important that we invest our time in those things, like thinking about political ways forward, thinking about how do we challenge our partners to really stand with us in in our principles of liberation and in anti-Zionist organizing and imagining a world free of settler colonialism and colonialism in all its forms yeah I think that's the most positive way forward that we have right now
0: a brilliant way to finish the show thank you so very much Lara and Cody from the Good Shepherd Collective and listeners defundracism.org goodshepherdcollective.org there'll be links in the website go there support sign up for the newsletters Anything from $5, $10, 50 a month, please support the work of Cody O'Rourke and Lara Kilani, Good Shepherd Collective. Thanks, guys, so very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Nasser. Thanks,
0: Nasser. Today's episode is in memory of Thomas Herndal, who was assassinated on April 11 in the Gaza Strip by an Israeli sniper. He was shot in the head Laid in coma before he passed away. He was there with the ISM, the International Solidarity Movement, endeavouring to protect Palestinian children. May you rest in peace. Sadly, there's barely a day that we can't commemorate or remember anything. Shireen Abu Akhla, Palestinian journalist, would have celebrated a birthday in the past week. We also had the 75th anniversary of the Der Yassin massacre in Palestine. Tomorrow, Sunday the 16th of April, we've got an emergency rally at the State Library at 1pm. Just a vigil for an hour. Get along, tell your friends, an emergency rally, hands off at Aqsa. Please join us there. In the meantime, make sure you're reserved May 13, Saturday, May 13, for a nationwide day of action for 75 years since the Nakba. May 13, 75 years of Nakba, There'll be action all across Australia. Make sure you save that date, May 13. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.